Okay, the first thing I would say is, what's wrong with being a wannabe entrepreneur? A wannabe millionaire? We're all a wannabe before we are. But there's this divide now in mental health whereby you've got this extreme, soft, entitled, woke society or part of society. If your family has been raped and murdered, you know, then you're going to get PTSD from that probably. If gender is an identity, then there's an infinite number of identities. But sexes, biologically, there are two. You know, weak people, as a product of an easy society, end up creating a hard society. And then you need strong people, especially strong men. And by the way, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I will. Hey, can you do me a quick favour? Could you just hit the subscribe, the follow or the thumbs up button? It honestly helps more than you'd imagine. And we're going to bring in listeners each month to watch the online disruptor in person. Thank you. Bob, at the age of 25, I was £50,000 in debt. Quoted. What went wrong? I didn't know how to manage money. I didn't know how to manage my emotions around money. I wasn't taught by anyone, school or um, society, how to manage money well. Credit was too easy to get. Anyone could get a credit card and a mortgage back then, what that was, mid-2000s. Um, and, you know, my, my money situation only changed by getting out of debt and making my first million, then my 10th million. And, and where I am now only changed when my behavior around money changed and my beliefs around money changed to drive the behaviors. So essentially what went wrong is I was buying depreciating liabilities um, on credit, i.e. creating debt on credit cards to buy depreciating liabilities. So the debt accrues interest and therefore you owe more. And the thing that you buy goes down in value and therefore depreciates more, so you lose twice. Um, and it was only until I ed educated myself around money did, that that changed. How did you educate yourself? Because schools, unis, colleges, from my experience, they're bullshit when it comes to finances, taxes and, and real world stuff. How did you educate yourself? Because they don't. Yeah, I think if you want to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, an accountant, a solicitor, then you know, going to a good college can potentially set you up for a good career. It's no guarantee, though. But yeah, if you want to be an entrepreneur, for example, occasionally intellectuals and economists criticize my book Money. I've made, I've done 200 million in sales. Name me an economist that has. Name me an intellectual that has. It's very rare. Um, so I'm, I'm not a theory type person. I'm a practical reality type person. Look, it's a bit of a rabbit hole going down into why schools and colleges and universities don't teach proper financial management to start your own business, how to get taxes down. Ultimately, it's because it's not in their self-interest. People think that banks exist to protect your money. They don't. Banks exist to make profit. Um, so why would the system teach you how to not be reliant on the system? Because then the system wouldn't be able to make money from you. Um, it doesn't want you to be a free independent thinker. It wants you to get a mortgage and be in debt for 25 years and then remortgage it and be in debt for another 25 years. 
It wants you to pay into a state pension so you can essentially fund the state. Um, it wants you to just keep paying taxes and not try and write off or offset any of your expenses. It just wants you to, you know, do as you're told. Um, and I'm not bitter about that because um, if I could, for £10 million, buy a money printing machine that I can put on my desk and print my own currency, I would. Why wouldn't I? And the government have one of those. And I'd have one of those if I could. So I, I, I just want to educate people. This is the thing. My mission is to educate people to get better financial education and knowledge. I want to educate people to know how the system works. You're going to be pissed off at first because you've been told a lie. But then once you've got over your own emotion, you realize this is just human nature. And then you take the skills. Because actually money is an amazing tool and the banks is an amazing way to create profit. And you take what you learn and you remove your human emotion and your judgment. And you go, oh, okay, how can I do that for myself, my family, my community? Um, and, and that's really my mission. So the school system is never going to change. That's why I decided to launch my own foundation. I can try and change the school system. Why are they going to listen to me? Or I can create my own school system. Let's talk about your, your, your family. They, they, they didn't support you. They couldn't help you. Yeah, they did support me. And this was part of the problem. And I love them for it. But um, in some ways, the support my dad gave me helped me be entrepreneurial because he always taught me that there's work out there and you can go and get work out there. And if you want to earn money, go and do a good job. And it just so happened I was working for, for him from age six. But also, because my dad loved me and he didn't get anything really from his parents, he supported me at times too much. Helped me buy my first house, bought my, bought my first car, you know, paid for my school, paid for a lot of my college. And whilst I contributed too, I knew I could always fall back and rely on my dad. And um, that didn't serve me to be entrepreneurial. So he did it with love and I don't blame him for it. Um, but, you know, what I teach people now is you've got to build up your own skill set and your own ability to earn your own money, create your own business, create your own economy. Um, look, in some instances, if your main attribute is beauty, you might be able to marry into money. I used to be quite critical of that. I'm not critical of that anymore if you offer value. Um, you know, my wife married me before I was rich. Well, she got with me before I was rich and she supported me or, you know, and she doesn't work now. And, and I think that she offers equal value. Um, so my tunes changed on that a bit. And, you know, some people will inherit it, but that can be a curse because you didn't learn the skills required to make, manage and multiply it. So really, I just took it upon myself to self-educate. And I, I've become way more successful through self-education than I have through traditional education. Uni and college, you know, sixth form. None of this, I, I don't, I used to, I did geography at GCSE, which is geography in French. I've, I've no use for that, no functionality. You um, haven't used that No, in funnily enough, I haven't <laughs> used that to make millions. Yeah. And I did architecture and I haven't used that for any purpose. But all the stuff I self-educated with on, you know, following in influencers and creators and reading books and listening to podcasts and going on courses. I mean, now, of course, I've become the, the teacher of that. Um, these are the things that... Um, Work in practical reality on the streets. Definitely. December the 15th, 2005. It was the worst day and best day of my life. What happened? My dad had a, n a nervous breakdown in his pub in front of all of his customers. He got arrested and beaten up by the police, sectioned and diagnosed with bipolar. Be before or after your, your £50,000 of debt? Oh, that was about the apex of my debt because when that happened, I, I remember... I 
back at the time, I was a, a, a reasonably useful, maybe about a blue belt martial artist. And I stood there watching my, the police beat my dad up and I really wanted to intervene. And I just froze and I couldn't. Uh, and I felt such a coward. And I felt such shame that, um, you know, what my dad went through, I felt partly responsible for because he'd always tried to provide for me. And I was dependent and juvenile on his money and his work to be able to make my own living, which I was squandering. So um, one of the reasons it was also the best day of my life was because that was the first day of the rest of my life. I feel like I have two lives, pre-December the 15th, 2005 and post-December the 15th, 2005. And my whole life was going nowhere fast. And without this event to happen, nothing would have changed. It would have just gotten worse. But it forced me to get into property. It forced me to go and meet my business partner. It forced me to self-educate. It forced me to ha it gave me a reason and accountability to make some money. I since retired my parents. I gave them a load of money, keep buying them a new car, gave them a house. And it, this is, none of this probably would have happened pre December 2005. Did this impact you mentally? So, so I mean, everything impacts you mentally. Yeah. Everything. So, so you, so you like Harry's clicking is impacting me exactly. mentally right now. <laughs> so you he's just trying to leverage the time and do a bit of work. But <laughs> Yeah, of course he is. He, he's, he's out there getting big guests for our podcast. I know he is. Well, I am coming soon. Really? Yeah. Um, everything affects you mentally. But the question is, it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond to it. So, um, you know, anything can be a stressing or a blessing, depending on how you perceive it. And I think I perceived it as a stressing at first because I didn't know how to handle it. I now look back and realize it was a great blessing and it was the first day of the rest of my life. Um, I'm not one of these guys that, <clears throat> a few years ago, I did talk a lot about mental health because, um, you know, there's a lot of people suffering. Um, but there's this divide now in mental health whereby you've got this extreme, soft, entitled, woke society or part of society, which is, oh, I can't do a full day's work because of my mental health. And, and these, these people don't know that they're born. And, you know, their grandfathers fought in wars. And, but then on the other side of it, male suicide is really high. You know, there are stresses and strains on life and women as well, but men, and there are real things that can affect you. So um, ultimately, um, I think mental health is about contextualizing what's going on. If your family has been raped and murdered, you know, then you're going to get PTSD from that probably. And, and, and that is something that is dramatically going to affect your mental health and you should get therapy and you should get help. If you got a critic, on YouTube, taking the piss out of your, the buckle on your shirt, that not, should not be affecting your mental health. So we've just lost a bit of context in the world. Is mental health a trend? Because for me, it almost feels like this, this blow up of like LGBTQ stuff. It feels very similar to that. No. You, had, you missed out the plus. Plus, oh, sorry. Plus. Cancel, motherfucker. <laughs> no, it feels like that, like 10 years ago, there wasn't these like what what is it there's 150 um like, it could be 150 like thoughts or something now can't you like do you know what i mean um uh, what's the word you don't mean genders do you yeah 100 you can be like 150 genders apparently according to kate hopkins there are two yes 
I agree. <laughs> well, actually, there's two sexes. If gender is an identity, then there's an infinite number of identities. But sexes, biologically, there are two. Is, is, can you be born a eunuch? I think it's possible to have... So there's two and a bit genders. There, so there's two and a bit sexes. I'm trying to give you a viral short yeah. here. So bear with me because this might be good for you. So there's two and a bit sexes. And there's an infinite number of genders. Because actually, if you want to identify as a goat, a eunuch goat, who am I to tell you you can't? Uh, I'm not, probably not going to hire you because I'm not looking for eunuch goats. Um, but I, I reserve you the right to identify however you want. Don't tell me what sex I am or what sexes there are. But you can be whatever gender identity you want. Anyway, what was the question? Anyway, <laughs> the question was, do you think this feels sort of like a bit of a trend? You mean mental health? Yeah, because it is, it is like what we've just spoken about. It feels like 10 years ago, no one battered an eyelid. And now... Well, I don't know about that, because talk to anyone in the military or anyone who went out to war, you know, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, they'd say that, you know, mental health issues are real. So I... I I think what you're saying is, has it become more pervasive on social media? And is it getting more engagement and clicks? Yeah, probably. But that's also good because there are a lot of people who've struggled with genuine mental health issues and there's no awareness of it. What I will tell you is if you're a man 50 years ago and you complained and said, oh, I'm emotional and I don't, my mental health isn't very good, you'd be ridiculed. And so if there's something genuinely going on, there's some PTSD or there's genuine illness, I think it's really good that people now feel like they can speak out. But then you've got that extreme left, woke, entitled people. And in a way, it's not their fault. Like, I can't go to school because my mental health, because daddy shouted at me. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not even that bad. Um, But... We are a product of our environment. None of those people would be lefty, wokey or entitled if they were on the front line with a rifle in World War Three. And that's why our grandparents were very pragmatic and stoic because they had to go through a war. You can't really blame people who've had it easy. It's just that that's what happens. You know, weak people as a product of an easy society end up creating a hard society. And then you need strong people, especially strong men, to toughen up and make society good again. And that, that's, that's, that's cyclical. And we're certainly at the point now where, you know, strong men are needed in the world. And I don't know how, how many strong... This is why people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate are so popular. Because so many men haven't had a father figure or so many men have be, become effeminate. Um, and so, you know, there's this reaction to this by tuning back into what makes a man a man. Do you think you, you've obviously you've spoken to Andrew Tate, you've interviewed him, I believe, on your podcast. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. What's he actually like? Do you think he, he's giving a bad perception to, to young kids out there who might take his content the wrong way? Well, I think it depends who you are. Um, if you're a 15 year old schoolgirl, you're going to have a very different view 
than if you are a 35 year old male. You know, what's Andrew Tate? 35, 36. So many 35 year old males are going to resonate. 15 year old girls, maybe not so much. If you're the parent of a 15 year old girl, maybe not so much. He's very clear on who his demographic is and it's male. So I can understand why, therefore, more females aren't going to resonate. Um, my experience with Andrew Tate has been nothing but good. I'm a 44-year-old male. Um, but he was respectful, polite, timely, responsive. We communicate regularly. Um, and I see a lot of lost young men who they are finding guidance and almost a father figure in him that maybe they didn't have. You also see a load of people who've got not got their own identity, trying to wear clothes like him and smoke cigars like him. And, and you know, like, yeah, you won't find me smoking a cigar with him because I don't smoke cigars. You won't find me getting pissed with Tristan Tate because I don't drink. So because I know who I am a lot more, I'm able to see other people for who they are. And um, I also like to judge people on how I am. Also, he's not currently yet convicted of any crime. If he becomes convicted of a crime in this proof, then I'll address that at the point. But currently he's not convicted of any crime. So a lot of, you know, social media has become the judge, the jury and the executioner. And, um, you know, hit jobs on mainstream media, um, which, which haven't re don't really seem to have come forward with any proof, um, are... I mean, mainstream media is dying. BBC is dying. And so it's really using Andrew Tate to stay relevant and get clicks and eyeballs and views with a, an ulterior motive, with a hidden agenda, with no transparency. And I, I really have a disdain now for mainstream media because of that. Yeah. Is Andrew Tate intelligent? Yes. Does he know what he's doing? Yes. Has he played the social media game? Yes. Has he made probably north of 100 million out of it, yes. Um, would I do the same, yes. Might I have said some of the things he said, no. Have I said some rather silly, flippant things in my life, yes. <laughs> Who am I to judge? Would you say the most controversial things he said if you knew you'd blow up on, on social media? Is that important? To I you? think you've got to actually, um, is blowing up on social media important to me? Yes. Is, does it, create the identity of who I am. No, I know who I am. And I know if my content is good. You know, Harry and I talk about this a lot because we're trying to, you know, if I have a podcast and no one watches it, I don't have a podcast. If I have a YouTube and no one watches it, I don't have a YouTube. Um, but I always say to Harry, at the end of the, the episode, you know, whether I think it's good content or not. And if I think it's good content and Harry thinks it's good content, then that's good enough, isn't it? And if it goes viral, great. And if it doesn't, it doesn't change the identity of who I am. At times, we've probably tested stuff which is maybe a bit gimmicky. Um, and the reason we've done that is because we need to be seen, otherwise we don't exist. An artist wouldn't paint if no one would see their work. That, that's, it's not why they paint. They want people to see and experience their, their work. But you'd probably have to put in front of me the exact phrases because some would probably say, no, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, I might say that. I'd probably reword that. It depends on the context of what I am saying. I read something on your LinkedIn <clears throat> on the train up that said, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it said something along the lines of all these 21-year-old kids come to me wanting to come on my podcast and talk about 
um, how to be a man and how to to win at life and how to um yeah how to um date women yeah why did you write that I mean I I know why you wrote why did I write that because yeah. it's the truth why what why is it the truth you'd have to ask all the people who want to come on my podcast I, I like on the one hand. I respect someone who goes out and asks a question. You know, there's people I'm trying to get on my podcast. Russell Brand, I've, you know, we've had some communication there and he's not yet replied to come on the show. He might say something about me. I'm still going to try. And I love a trier. Yeah. So I don't have any problem with anyone asking me. It's just number one, maybe don't ask me before you can offer me something. I mean, I can offer Russell Brand probably millions of views, but Russell Brand might perceive he can get that anyway. But I can offer something to him. Um, whereas what can a 21-year-old kid who's had, you know, a few women teach me about relationships? You know, I, I, I like, I'd rather have someone come on my podcast who's been married for 50 years. I think they can teach a lot more about relationships than someone who's 21 who might have had four of them and read a couple of online courses and now is the guru of them. And watched Andrew Tate. Maybe. And, and yeah, some of them have come from his community and they've got this bravado because Andrew Tate's got bravado, but they, the, the timing of it is wrong. You know, there's a couple of people who I want on the show and I've asked and they've declined. Who? Uh, good, good question. Do I want to reveal that? Do I want to reveal that? Who's declined the show? Mm. Okay, I'll give you one example with one I was thinking of. Um, we've got Chris Williamson agreed to be on the show, who's very popular at the moment. And um, Harry's been back and forth trying to bag that. And I'm in Brighton speaking on the same stage as him. And he's declined to do the interview there. So I've decided I won't ask him again. If he wants to be on the show, the offer's there, but I won't ask him again. Now, maybe he's got his own reason, but I value myself such that it's worth coming on my show. Um, so you have to know, you have to have the chutzpah, is that how they pronounce it? To ask and face rejection. But you also have to know when to not beg. You know, I'm good enough to be on his show. Why isn't he asking me to be on his show? So I'm not going to beg him to come on mine just because I'm down there. I'm going to ask him once. And if he doesn't see it as value, then... He can, we, we can wait a year and then he'll ask to be on my show. And this isn't ego, by the way, because sometimes when I feel like that, I go, whoa, is that ego? Because I think it's important to evaluate your own ego. But I've been doing this for 17 years and I've generated a couple of hundred million in revenue. And my story is not as well known as it should and maybe not as told in as many places. And this is one of the reasons why these kids who made a bit of money in crypto, you know, Wait 15 years, let's, let's see if you're still a millionaire. But then at the same time, fair play. So it's a, it's a bit of a paradox. Um, Russell Brand's another example of someone. The, the, the offer is there to be on the show. But at the minute, it's not done. So you, you wrote a tweet that said, Russell, please! <laughs> <laughs> you wrote a tweet that said you've got a guest coming on that turned down Stephen Bartlett's podcast. Yeah. Who is that? Uh, he's, he's already been on now. Oh, Two Kasuliaman from Dragon's Den. Why did he turn down Stephen's? Because he's smart. 
<laughs> um, mine was the first podcast he's ever been on. And he said the reason is he likes my um, no BS direct approach. Yeah. Do you reckon them and Stephen get on? Really? I don't know. I, 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 I really like Tuca from yeah. my time spent with him. And he has a bit of a, a ding-dong dig with Stephen Bartlett, doesn't he, about, you know, what does Stephen Bartlett know about business? I respect Stephen Bartlett and what he's achieved, but there's some pomp, pageantry, snobbery and bullshittery in there as well. And I've experienced some of that personally. But at the end of the day, I've not treated everyone perfectly. You know, so don't throw stones if you live in a glass house. So I try not to judge. We're in a similar space. He's done very well to get his reach out there. He's invested heavily in the show. Um, fair play. Um, but, you know, he's not. He doesn't have a halo and a white gown like many people think he does. It, it is very weird, the perception of him. People think he's this sort of god, this perfect, idolised person. Only when you don't know who you are do you put someone on a pedestal like that. Yeah, to me, he's another human being. Um, I used yeah. to, five years ago. Used to what? You used to put him on a pedestal. Used to think he was this. Why don't you anymore? My mindset changed. My, my my thoughts changed. Like like you said, he's another human being. He's he's nothing. Yeah, he's done very well. He's nothing special. He he has interesting conversations, but my mindset changed. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, he's a very good marketer. Yes, you know because every show of his is the most amazing show and have with the most amazing guests with the most interesting conversation. But surely that can only be one of them. So, for those who don't know, which, let's be fair, most people listening to this will know, is you're a very, very talented, incredible, hard-working... Good-looking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hard-working. Humble. <laughs> yeah. Not egotistical. Entrepreneur. What does your journey actually look like? You mean the past, the present, or the future? Past present and the future um well the past is someone who worked really hard at the start after december the 15th 2005 went and worked for a property sourcing company learned on the streets how to buy property went and bought a lot of property with other people's money then wrote a book then started running courses then built the uk's largest property training company um we've got what 107 staff now in the training business at times that's been if you include all the online people, we might be near 125. We've been up as high as 150 before. We have the biggest property management company in Peterborough. We have 340 properties that we own, 1,350 tenants that we manage. I've written, what, 19 books. Now, that's my journey. That's why I've done. I broke world records for longest public speech. We've done more than 1,000 episodes on our two podcasts. That's just me. That's not a brag. That's not. It's more like a CV. It's, it's facts. Um, I think in some ways I've done pretty well. I think in other ways, if I'd have been a bit more... See, I became more risk-averse when I had my kids. And I think I was more cautious. And sometimes I think I could have been so much bigger. But then I'm very happy with what I've achieved. Because if you can't be happy with what you've got, 
then you're always going to live in the past or the future. The past is I want my life to be like it was. The future is I want my life to be something better. And I've got better over the years at living in the present, which is, you know, yeah, I've got goals. Just finished my 19th book, nearly there on the 20th. Um, so there's that, write those five to 10 pages a day, every day, stay present to do that. Um, but then there's also the three and five year planning of the growth of the businesses. In some ways, I feel like I've done very well despite myself because I was a, a big ball of negativity and jealousy and I didn't have any skills, entrepreneurial. Well, that's not true. I, I did have some. So in some ways, I think I've done well in spite of myself. In other ways, I feel like I'm just warming up. 17 years in, 44. I think it's about now that the average age of the average person that starts their business. I've had 17-year head start. So in some ways, I think, yeah, I'm just warming up for a good next, hopefully, 40 or 50 years. One thing I'm curious about is because... I've, I've spoke to entrepreneurs who had a goal when they started success, what success looks like when they started their business as opposed to now. What did success look like when you first started out after? Get out of debt. I mean, to not be in debt was successful when you're 50 grand in debt. And then it's to make three grand a month, then five grand a month, then 10 grand a month, then your first million, then your 10th million. So, you, you know, you're normally pushing new levels. There has to come to a point where if you, if you want to really grow, you need to serve. Um, and so there comes a point where you have to stop looking at, oh, I want to be a billionaire and start looking at how can I impact a billion lives. But there's no harm in being a little bit selfish to get yourself out of debt and get your first five or 10 grand a month in because you've got mouths to feed and, you know, that everyone's entitled to make a living. What's your goal now? What's, your, what's success for you now? Yeah, I don't have one goal. Um, I have many I think goals are fantasies. How many people set goals? Not many. How many people achieve the goals they set? Not many. Because if, if you think about it, a goal is, I would like, I would like to be a billionaire. That's a goal. But it's, sort of it's, it's a delusion yeah. in, in some regards. It's a fantasy because I, I prefer, what's my plan? What's my outcome? What's my roadmap? So I want to keep writing books, especially on the subject of money. By the time I'm age 50, I want about, six million extra followers, give or take, and to be one of the world's leading perceived authorities, because all authorities are perceived, on money. And I have to write a lot more about money over the next six years to achieve that goal. That's definitely one big goal of mine, which is why you're seeing a lot more of my content around money now. Um, you know, Harry and I went out on the streets and started interviewing people locally about money. I've just finished Money Matrix. I've nearly finished Money Loves You. I'll be on to, I might write The Creator Economy. I might write Capital. I might write Income. I might write Recurring Income. So, yeah, these are some of, some of my goals. We will always buy property. I'll always enjoy life. You know, I'll buy the watch. I'll buy the car. I'll buy the house. I'll go to the place if I want to um, because life's too short not to. What one thing that struck me there is one of your goals you want six million new followers. Why do you give a shit about followers? Well, um, how else do you get your message out to people? Great marketing. Great reach. But isn't six million followers great reach? So you could just pay a thousand quid to reach X percentage of that people on, on Instagram ads? 
yeah, I mean, you, you know, I spend six figures a month on paid ads for my companies. And that's so you can force growth. But I wouldn't have to spend any if I had 100 million followers on social media and I knew how to turn those followers into finances. So I think maybe what you're driving at, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, sometimes the follower metric can be a vanity metric. It's not to me. Um, you don't see much vanity on my social media. I only really post personal stuff 5% of the time, and it's because my social media manager tells me to. But my, my social media content is 99.9% work. And I build a following so that I can impact those people and monetize that impact. And you, you make a lot more money out of 6 million followers and impact a lot more people out of 6 million followers than you will out of 6,000 followers. And it's going to cost you a fuck ton of paid ads to reach 6 million engaged, interested people. I often ask people the question on my show, would you rather have a million quid or a million engaged followers? I cannot understand why any human would not choose a million engaged followers. Like that says to me, if you choose the money, you're either broke, because a million isn't a lot of money nowadays, or you don't know how to make a million pounds out of a million social media followers. But it's only a pound a follower. But that's the important part, engaged. You could have a million followers and 10% be engaged. That's, that's irrelevant. That's, that's pointless, well, right? It is and it isn't. I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of tomfoolery out there where people, you know, they've got, what, follower farming and they buy followers. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll put my hand straight up and say I, I've probably tested 15 different agencies that can growth hack you and help you grow your following and... Um, I'd say 14 of the 15 have ended up being shy. So at least 20% of my following is from them and it's pretty dead. And so, yeah, that's irrelevant. But the reason I tried those is because I still live in the hope that, because if you can accelerate your growth, why wouldn't you? But, you know, we, we get loads of offers now and we turn them all down. And by the way, most people wouldn't admit that um, because I'm a marketer as well as what the other things that I am. And I'm always going to test, just like you might test Google ads, YouTube ads, Facebook ads, podcast ads. So let's say 80% of my following is natural and organic. Well, it's actually not within my control, my reach. It's within Facebook, Instagrams, YouTubes. Changes all the time. It does. All I can do is what I can do. And all I can do is, you know, we were talking earlier before we went live about Twitter. And I've been, X now. And I've been informed that native videos on X are getting good reach. I will go where the reach is. And, And... I will move away from where the reach isn't. So yeah, I, I, I could have a lot of followers. If I've not got any reach, it's not relevant. But also, not having many f- followers is also not relevant. One thing I wanted to sort of pick your brains on is I see quite a bit of this on like Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and oh, X now. And I, I won't lie, I've been quite guilty of this in the past. Are these wannabe entrepreneurs? Especially when I started my business, I, was a, I, I would describe myself as a wannabe entrepreneur what are your thoughts on these people who want to be entrepreneurs for girls for twitter buyers instagram buyers okay the first thing i would say is what's wrong with being a wannabe entrepreneur a wannabe millionaire we're all a wannabe before we are so if anyone is trying to start a business you'll never see me criticize them in fact i'll support them if i see them on social media and they're you know a bit of fake it before you make it and they're trying to be and they want to be 
Fucking fair play to them. It's like an overweight person that goes to the gym. You will never see me ridicule someone who's got bad form or is overweight down the gym because they're fucking down the gym and they're trying. Um, however, if someone is bullshitting, completely fake, utter nonsense, blagging it, they need feedback because, you know, that, that's, that's on a mission for crashing and burning. So as an entrepreneur, I'm always going to be a little bit more sympathetic to people who are wannabes. I, I, there's plenty of things I want to be, so I'm still a wannabe. What the fuck's wrong with that? But I think what I've got better at over the years is I know who I am and I know who I'm not. And I'm not trying anywhere near as much to be what I'm not. And I am much more cognizant and balanced and aware of what I am. You, you, don't, you don't like the phrase fake it till you make it then? No, I like be it till you see it. Because like, why would anyone be attracted to a fake? But you know, acting as if and implementing in real quick time what you learn and having the mindset that you are going to be successful, full support from me. But lies and bullshit and fakery, in the end you get busted. It's not smart. Over the last few years, we've seen a number of like successful entrepreneurs such as Elon Musk, Richard Branson go into a totally different industry. So they went into space. My question for you is, what's your dream industry to go into? If you had unlimited money, unlimited resources, what would you do? Right now, I'd probably dump unlimited money and resources into AI. And the reason being is I think it's one of the most exciting, polarizing, dual paradox dual use paradox um, industries that exists. It's moving quicker than ever before. And those that get AI early, they're going to win big. It's the, the new gold rush. Um, there are certain industries that make money more easily than others. So if you had unlimited resources, you could make a fuck ton of money in the pharmaceutical industry. Just ethically, I, I can't do that. So actually, I'd rather be in the fitness industry because at least I can have a more positive. Because, you know, if you've got unlimited money and resources, you want to go into something with the maximum amount of potential clients. So what's going to affect the most people? Because another, another thing I think is easy money is cosmetics. Because people will just, you know, as you can see, I've not had Botox and I refuse. And I get a few comments now from kids. I remember one guy, he had Botox, a friend of mine. And he was like, my forehead used to look like that. And he pointed at my forehead. <laughs> and I thought, fuck you. But um, he's 30 and he's having Botox. I'm 44 and I'm not. I'm, I'm holding on to my individuality. But, you know, all this, uh, the amount of money that people are spending to not look themselves is fucking easy money. But. You know, people I know in this industry, they say all oh, the people that come, their problem is much deeper. So that's, that's an industry. Cosmetics is an industry where there's good money to be made, but ethically and morally, nah, I can't do it. So fitness, the good thing about that is you can make a real impact. I'll tell you what, if I had unlimited money and resources, I'd fight the government. I'd fight against... 
I'd spend trillions in advertising, going for walks, going to the gym, taking full responsibility for what's wrong inside you or what you don't own that's making you overweight and disencouraging you from taking this new super drug that you can take that apparently can make you lose a load of weight. And I, I would fight the system and get rid of all this bullshit. And you can, you know, clearly you can make a fuck ton of money with unlimited resources uh, and unlimited money. And wouldn't it feel good? Because I remember seeing, it was, it was on BBC and apparently Rishi Sunak was very proud of this new miracle drug. For, like, I don't even take headache pills. If I've got a banging headache, I don't take headache pills. My wife's often saying, oh, you know, just take this, take that. I don't take it because I believe in my body. And I believe if I've got an ache or a pain, there's a reason for that. And yet we fucking drug up society, um, playing on their insecurities and allowing the, the big farmer to make billions. Imagine if you could make billions by teaching people stuff that really fucking works. Hot and cold therapy. 20,000 steps a day, you know, a good balanced diet. Wow, I'd love to do that. Amazing. One thing I wanted to ask you about your podcast is you've had some incredible guests on here. One I was watching on the train up was the one with Jake Paul. I thought you were brilliant. Him, I God, thought just say he was a twat. <laughs> he came across as a lazy... Jake Paul, Jake... <laughs> a je- arrogant, lazy, not wanting to be there twat. And I don't get why. Why do you think? The human part of me likes to have some empathy. Maybe he had a lot of shit going on. Who knows? Um, maybe he'd had some bad news. Because do you know what? Most of my staff, when they're not performing in work, is because they've got personal problems at home. And if you understand that and you have empathy without being a pushover, that can be useful. You can be seen as a good manager. So the human part of me likes to think like that. Just like, you know, the human part of me has muchos respectos for Stephen Bartlett. But then, and by the way, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I will. I donated a fair sum to his anti-bullying charity. Now, would I have got the podcast without it? Maybe, but... I put a good, sizable donation to make sure that that was done. Might have been harder to get. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people won't go on a show without getting paid. So, and yeah, he was apathetic, probably high, um, obnoxious. But one of the clips got, what, seven and a half million views on TikTok? If he'd have been all nice and pally, would that have happened? Maybe not. So it is what it is. I, I, I don't know. You see, I, I don't really know Jake Paul. Um, and I really respect what he's done. I think he's been very disruptive in boxing. And I think he's, he could change that sport. I'd like to interview him when he wants to do it. Because clearly, he didn't, he didn't really want to do it. But the thing is, you either do it or you don't. Do you, do you regret giving that lump of sum to get him on at that time? No, or would you no that, that, no, that um, donation went to an anti-bullying charity. So you know when people say, oh, what a fucking waste of money. That money goes somewhere. So for example, my, my wife and I were watching a series on TV called Lioness. And you know, there's this billionaire criminal and they have this lavish wedding. And my wife's like, what a fucking waste of money. 
but what about all the little boutique companies that got paid, you know, the cake maker, you know, the furniture provider. So nothing's really wasted in that regard. It's not how money works. So I essentially donated to a, an anti-bullying charity, being bullied myself. I think that's really good. In my ideal fantasy of how I would have liked Jake Paul to be, would I like to have, of him to be respectful and, you know, give me more time and enjoy the show? Yeah. But actually, we, you're not talking about the 990 episodes I did with 990 cool, interesting people who weren't disruptive and rude and obnoxious. You're talking about, everyone talks about Jake Paul or Chris Eubank and they were the two rude, obnoxious, because, and everyone talks about it. Because that lasts, right? It's this, this is, it's this invisible PR thing that people don't see. People see them be rude, obnoxious, a bit of a twat. But whereas you're nice, you almost feel a bit well, forgotten. Well, the, the, the problem is nice doesn't go viral. I know. So if you so, want to say something rude, you, you crack on now. <laughs> Oi, Jake, fuck you and come on my podcast for round two. <laughs> I'd, of course I'd have him straight back on. And actually, I'll tell you what, if I'd have been there, I reckon he'd have been different. We always like to do face-to-face much better than Zoom. Actually, the Zooms are hard for rapport. Do you remember the one we did with Jordan Belfort? You know, that was a bit awkward and tense and they're always better face-to-face. But, you know, we obviously weren't able to make it happen. I mean, the Floyd Mayweather ones, Floyd at times, he was pretty defensive and a a bit... You can't break them in in person as well, can you? I mean, I'm I'm not trying to break them. um, It's not my goal. And I have to be careful as an interviewer. Do I the the human side of me wants rapport? But what's going to make a great interview? If I had a public argument with Donald Trump, that would be much better for virality than if I had a nice conversation with a nice person. Unfortunately, I'm not saying that I like that or that it's right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I challenge my guests a fair bit more now um, because that's what people want. Anyway, finishing up, let's talk, moving on a bit from Jake Paul, boxing. You, you've had one fight? Yeah, one, I'm done. D- didn't go very well, did it? It depends how you define going very well. Well, you lost in three two-minute rounds. Um, the majority of the 1,800 people were in, that were in the room were in the room because I got them in the room. We raised nearly a quarter of a million pounds for charity. I don't know if you've ever had a fight and raised that amount of money for charity. I've never had a um, fight. Would, would I don't do, want to ruin this face. <laughs> would I do a second fight and lose it to raise that kind of money again if my wife would give me the blessing? Yeah, I would. Um, I fought someone 20 kilos heavier than me. I absolutely hammered him for most of the first round. I got a tame knockdown, which in any normal fight that's not overly cautious white collar wouldn't have been a knockdown. Um, Most people thought I won the fight. Most people thought stylistically I was the better fighter. Um, And... So the only thing I lost was the perception of whether I won or lost to three apparently independent judges. That was the only thing I lost. Everything else, I won. I got significantly fitter and stronger. I still box. 
can probably look after myself a bit more on the show. Well, definitely can consider him compared to where I was. So I don't see it as a loss at all. I see it as 10 victories and one minor defeat. Was the, um, was the beef real of Samuel? Yeah. You don't like him? That's a complicated question because I'm able to transcend my own judgment. Like, it, was he a good opponent for me to have in that fight? Yeah. Was he a better opponent than someone I'd be more friendly with? Yeah. Um, was he good at selling the fight? Yeah. Did he play, certainly to my audience, not necessarily his, but to mine, did he play the villain really well? Yeah. Did he take the fight seriously? Yeah. Is his life a lot better for fighting me? Yeah, he's still boxing. He's got another one coming up. Um, I don't, I, I can't say that I dislike anyone. Are there things about the way he is that I wouldn't be like? Yeah. But takes two to get in the ring. And, and you know, what we did was, like, there's nothing anyone can say that would make me think anything other than what we did was pretty amazing. Because do you know what I was told by the, the event organiser? said, most, professional, most lower level professional boxers don't ever get to experience an event like this. Do you know what hundreds of people said to me? That was more entertaining than most real boxing fights. We put on a fucking good show. And so I'm very proud. And sometimes it's not about whether you got the one or the O, it's about how you showed up. Um, and I gave him everything he wanted and he beat me on a split decision in a really fine margin. If I'd have done four rounds, I would have won. If I'd have done, it got him down to my weight, I'd have won. Um, if there'd have been um, head guards, I'd have won. And that's a fact because the knockdown wouldn't have happened without, you know, with a head guard. If I'd have done 16 ounce gloves, I would have won. By the way, this is not me giving sour grapes because I'm sure if you were interviewing Samuel, he'd be saying, well, no, 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 I won and the better fighter won. Fair play to him. And, and, and also, I think I was pretty humble in defeat and I let him have his moment. Um, so how, how can that be a loss? I'll tell, you the, I'll tell you who lost. Anyone who's had an opportunity to do something like that or even smaller than that and said no. Amazing. Well, we've got a closing to tradition on this podcast. It's one question, three quick fire answers. What three things is Rob Moore grateful for right now? And my family. Um, great people around me. And then probably equally my health and my wealth. Obviously without health, there is no wealth, but I fucking love money. Amazing. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Cheers, Liam.